0: What's the difference between a star and a planet? Quite a few things, but one of the most obvious is that stars emit light and planets reflect light. Stars do this by undergoing nuclear fusion in their cores. It seems simple enough until you get to the boundary between a star and a planet. Here objects called brown dwarfs blur the line. They're more massive than planets, but not big enough to begin nuclear fusion like stars. So what are they exactly? And what do we know about them? I'm Jonathan O'Callaghan, and welcome to Stories from a Space Journalist. Hello everyone, and welcome to the show. In the second half of today's episode, we're going to be diving into a new paper about one of NASA's Mars rovers, Curiosity. Since the rover landed on Mars in 2012, it's detected six unusual spikes of methane On Earth, methane is often linked to life. Might the same be true on Mars? First up, though, we're speaking to Sarah Casewell from the University of Leicester in the UK. She's an expert in brand dwarfs, those peculiar objects we were speaking about at the start of the show. Earlier this year, I reported for Quantum magazine on an interesting new brand dwarf we'd found in our local solar neighbourhood, dubbed the accident, because of its accidental discovery. Uh, Yeah, astronomers need to work on their nicknames. I spoke to Sarah to get her thoughts. Why was the finding so interesting?
1: The accident is what we call a sub-dwarf. It's a metal-pore brown dwarf. And it was found by accident, hence the name, by one of our citizen scientists, Dan Castledon, as part of the Backyard World's Planet Nine citizen science project. So Backyard World runs... On the Zooniverse platform, and we give our users images from NASA's WISE satellite and we look at them for objects that are clearly close by and moving quite fast, which might mean they are an undiscovered planet such as Planet Nine, but more commonly a brown dwarf in our solar neighborhood. And Dan was checking a brown dwarf that somebody had flagged and said, I think I've got one. And Dan was double checking it, and this peculiar looking object shot past on the image moving extremely fast and he's going whoa whoa, whoa." you know what's that forget what I was supposed to be looking at what's that thing over there and it turned out to look sort of like a brown dwarf it's faint enough to be a brown dwarf in fact it's very faint we barely we just about needed Hubble to detect it it was that faint we couldn't detect it from the ground using the biggest telescopes that exist at the moment like And when we look at it in different wavelengths, different colours of light, if you like, it looks peculiar compared to a lot of other brown dwarfs. So it's about as bright as the coolest brown dwarfs we know, which are the white dwarfs. But when we look at what we describe as the colour, which is the difference between two wavelengths, it's what we'd call as it's blue. It's too far to the left on a normal Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which is where the metal-poor objects sit. And this is really interesting because there aren't any metal-poor white dwarfs known. There aren't a huge amount of white dwarfs known because they're extremely faint, even if they're nearby. So the idea that we found something quite nearby that is metal-poor is really really interesting and extremely unusual and we just have to keep our fingers crossed that with something like James Webb when it launches hopefully later this year we'll be able to get a spectrum of it and actually understand what is happening in its atmosphere and why it's so unusual.
0: Yeah just to jump back a bit could you just kind of explain to me what is a brown dwarf how do we actually define what a brown dwarf is?
1: So a brown dwarf is a failed star if you like it forms like a star However, it never gains enough mass to fuse hydrogen into helium and stop burning anything, which is what our sun does to hold itself up against gravity. Brown dwarfs form, and then once, once they form, they don't burn anything. So they're like giant Jupiters, if you like, in space, that once they're formed, they simply cool and fade away. So they're physically about the size of Jupiter. But they have masses between about 13 times that of Jupiter and sort of almost up to 75 times at the high mass end. And once they form, they simply cool and fade. Because of this cooling, their atmospheres change as they cool. So when they form, they have molecules in their atmosphere. So things like iron hydrides and uh, vanadium oxide, titanium oxide. And we commonly refer to these as dust young brown dwarfs, they are often referred to you as having sort of dust clouds in their atmospheres. And then eventually, as they cool, this dust dissipates in the atmosphere. The clouds break up and you're left with these methane-dominated brown dwarfs. And these these two different types of atmosphere, the dusty ones and the methane ones, form the two main types of brown dwarf. The L-dwarfs are these dusty, cloudy objects that sometimes show variability because of the clouds moving around as the earth would. If you looked at it from space, it would look different every day because the clouds move. So dusty, cloudy brown dwarfs look the same. And they are the L dwarfs. And then the T dwarfs are sometimes referred to as cloudless or clear atmosphere objects. And they're dominated by methane in their atmosphere.
0: How do we end up with different classes of brown dwarf? Is it a factor of how they first formed or something else later in their life?
1: It can be both. So because they cool as they age, as they get colder, different things happen in their atmospheres. So hot, young brown dwarfs tend to have all this dust in this cloud and a lot of carbon monoxide in their atmosphere. And as they cool, the carbon monoxide reacts um, with things like water and you end up with methane. And eventually, as the methane... Starts to cool again. You end up with things like ammonia that are forming, and these are the white dwarfs. But not all brown dwarfs form as the hot L dwarf. Some of if you are low mass enough, you might form as a T dwarf.
0: What sort of ages are we talking about?
1: In general, so what we would refer as sort of a normal brown dwarf that doesn't belong to a star cluster or anything like that would be anywhere between about five and eight billion years old.
0: Do they live so long just because we're not? They're not burning much fuel. They're just kind of gradually yes. decaying. Yep.
1: yep, that's that's exactly it. So in general with stars, the more massive you are, the shorter your lifespan because you have to gobble up all that fuel to hold yourself up against gravity. Brown dwarfs, because they're not burning anything, once they, they form, they just cool. So they are there eternally. And then
0: how much do we understand about what it takes to begin nuclear fusion in objects and why some objects are brown dwarfs and some are low mass stars?
1: So a lot of this can depend on the age of the object. The mass at which nuclear fusion starts is sort of dependent on how dense the object is. So older brown dwarfs are denser than younger brown dwarfs. This is to do with something called electron degeneracy pressure, which is the thing that holds up brown dwarfs and also white dwarfs, actually. So in a star, you have what's called hydrostatic equilibrium and gravity wants to pull the star together. It wants to make it more compact. And the burning, the nuclear fusion, is pushing it out. And you have this balance, like when you try to squeeze a a beach ball or something, and this this sort of pressure balances it out and it sits there quite happily in a brown dwarf or a white dwarf you don't there's no burning to push it outwards so the thing that's stopping gravity from collapsing it all together is electron degeneracy pressure and this is essentially the the pressure you get because electrons which are the small particles that orbit the atom the atomic nucleus in the composition of the of the brown dwarf they're negatively charged and like two North poles of a magnet. When you try and push them together, you feel that resistance. This is sort of a bit analogous. So the electrons don't really want to get any closer together because they're all negatively charged. So they all want to repel each other and they hold the object up, but how much energy the electrons have is dependent on how warm they are. So as the object cools, you can squidge it together ever so slightly. So although I say they're all about Jupiter size, they are physically all about Jupiter size with a bit of wiggle room, and that depends on how they cool. Younger brown dwarfs are physically bigger and hotter brown dwarfs are physically bigger than colder brown dwarfs and older brown dwarfs. It's a bit of a counterintuitive thing.
0: And just going back to the accident, so obviously this is at the lower end of the scale, the very lowest end. I'm looking at a plot kind of of its color versus other brown dwarfs. Why is it kind of... On its own in this plot, what does it mean to have a different colour to other brown dwarfs?
1: What we think from that the figure is that the the accident is metal poor, and it's the lack of the metals in the atmosphere means we have less absorption or more absorption in different places compared to in inverted commas a normal brown dwarf so it's the absence of these metals that are causing the spectrum although we can't we don't have a spectrum they're causing the spectrum to look different and our magnitudes if you like are that broadband colors that all the brightness within the wavelength range of the specific filter you're looking at sort of integrated over so if your absorption features, which look like little V's in the lines, are broader or shallower or deeper even than what than what you would expect. That will change the how much um, how bright the star is in that filter band in that wavelength range, and that's how you end up with these these strange colors because the total flux in that wavelength range is not the same.
0: When we say it's metal-poor, that means it's it formed earlier when there were fewer metals in the
1: universe? Quite probably. Or it or it, it may have formed somewhere in sort of a, a, a low-metallicity bubble, where there just weren't any metals in the region. But it's, it's quite likely that it is old, particularly if it's a halo member.
0: How can we find out more about this object? Can we do more observations with any telescopes, or is it more modelling?
1: Ideally, it's get a spectrum. We need to actually be able to split the light up from this object and see what it's made of, essentially. Now, the difficulty we have is that we currently don't really have any way of doing that. So we couldn't get deep enough photometry. We couldn't detect it from the ground in the J-band with Keck. So the chances that we can get a spectrum of it which is much harder, it's very unlikely we can get a spectrum of it from the ground. We might be able to get a spectrum of it at some point with the Hubble Space Telescope. And that's something we're working on. But realistically, we'd have to wait for James Webb Webb to launch. So James Webb... Although it's often referred to as the successor to Hubble, it's mainly going to observe in the near-infrared, so longer wavelengths than our eyes see, sort of um, bordering on the thermal, the heat sort of wavelengths. And James Webb will be able to take a spectrum at those of wavelengths, that 3.6, that 4.5, 5 microns, even out to 8 microns, we will be able to take a spectrum of this. And once we have a spectrum, we can compare it to spectra of other Y-dwarfs and also other metal-poor late methane T-dwarfs. And then we'll be able to, to see the differences and be able to say, okay, well, this object has way less methane than this other object. Or, oh, it has absorption from, you know, more absorption from ammonia or something like that. So we really need a spectrum before to actually understand what's what's going on within the atmosphere of this object.
0: And just finally, are, are there any other interesting brown dwarf avenues of research taking place at the moment that are worth keeping an eye on?
1: I'm working with a team who have been observing some quite extreme white dwarf-brown dwarf systems. So these are systems where the brown dwarf has survived the death of the white dwarf progenitor, so the star that formed the white dwarf. And the brown dwarf has been engulfed by the white dwarf progenitor when it was a giant. The brown dwarf spiraled inwards and the outer envelope of the giant has been ejected. And you're left with a brown dwarf orbiting a white dwarf within sort of about two hour orbit. So they're they're crazily extreme systems. If you imagine moving Jupiter and putting it on the Hubble Space Telescope's orbit, that's what these systems look like because the white dwarf is about (laughs) the size of the Earth and the brown dwarf is the size of Jupiter. And there are only about 10 of these systems known to date. They're extremely extreme systems. But we have Hubble Space Telescope data on about six of them. And we have, I think, at least two papers on looking at the atmospheres of the brown dwarfs in these systems submitted at the moment. So there could be some very interesting results coming out there as well.
0: Next, we're heading to our planetary neighbour, Mars. Here, for the last 9 years, NASA's Curiosity Rover has been exploring a region called Gale Crater, which we think once had a lake billions of years ago, and maybe even the right conditions for life. The rover has an instrument on board called the Tunable Laser Spectrometer, or TLS, which it's been using to look for methane, a sign of life on Earth. Weirdly, on 6 occasions, the rover's seen these kind of random spikes of methane coming from an unknown location. To the rover the spikes were pretty big but orbiting spacecraft like europe's trace gas orbiter didn't see them at all it suggested the source of the methane was maybe close to the rover or something else was going on in a new paper a team thinks they've managed to work out what's going on they've localized the six spikes to the northwest of gale crater if they're right that means curiosity is basically on top of this methane source which is pretty interesting while there's quite a few ways this methane could be produced on mars One tantalizing possibility is life. Microbial life could produce this methane that we're seeing. We don't know for sure yet, of course, and there's a long way to go, but it's very tantalizing. I covered the story for a new scientist, and to find out more, I spoke to John Moores, a planetary scientist from York University in Canada, to get his thoughts.
2: We've always thought with these, these spikes, the spikes are a little hard to understand, especially if they're distant, because the further away you go from the rover, the bigger a spike would need to be in terms of the amount of methane in order for us to detect it. So there has been this, uh, this sort of feeling that they must be you know local, they must be small, and if they can do that, then they can hide from the more global detections and the more global uh, measurements that are, are being made. And there seems to be some support for that in this paper. There is a, a region in the northwest corner of uh, Gale Crater where you can have quite small Emissions, just little burps of methane coming out of the ground that could explain the measurements. Why is methane on Mars so interesting to study? Well, on the Earth, the methane that we see in the atmosphere all comes from biological activity. So, you know, we have that in in the back of our head. There are types of uh, methanogenic organisms that create methane here on the Earth. On Mars, one of the, the really neat things about it is that 300 years may sound like a long lifetime, but compared to the, the length of time that Mars has been around since the start of the solar system, it's a very short period of time. So the fact that we see methane in the Martian atmosphere indicates that something is producing methane today. So that could be one of many sources. It could, you could imagine that you get material from organic matter in, in space that falls on, on the planet. We get a couple hundred tons of this stuff that falls on the earth every year. That actually is enough to create all the methane you would need. In fact, you create, you could create more methane from that than we actually see in the atmosphere. you could imagine old deposits of organic material, not having to do with life or anything like that. It's all what we call abiotic, that stuff being buried and degrading slowly over time. And then that seeping out through the subsurface. You can imagine periods in Mars's past where there might've been methane delivered directly by comets and that being preserved in the in the in the cryosphere of Mars and then as that material starts to break down a little bit then that could be released. So there is the the life methanogen thing as well, but there are all of these abiotic sources and one of the reasons why astrobiologists are more excited about the spikes than about the background is the background perfectly exp- explainable by abiotic sources. But if you have something like the mama plumes from 2009, you have 19,000 tons of material being dumped out there. That can be harder to explain by an abiotic source if that's really what's happening.
0: Has anyone attempted to localize a methane source on Mars to this kind of accuracy before?
2: Uh, never to this level of accuracy. So there, there is a paper, and they, they quote one from George Pla Garcia, who did some modeling a few years ago with Scott Rafkin to um, investigate areas around Gale. So they weren't looking at effectively every point on the planet the way that this paper is. They picked sort of a dozen different potential areas and asked the question about each one of these areas, you know, is this likely to have been the source location?
0: In terms of like, if we were trying to design a future mission to go and study this methane in more detail, would something like this, being able to localize
2: it and then being able to see what these sites look like, and is that useful? As a place to go for a future mission. It's, 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 it's an interesting question, because I, I think really what you want is more, more data. You want to be able to run this type of analysis on more than six spikes over a decade, right? In order to, to sort of narrow things down a little bit more, and, and it's still quite a big region they have mapped out. I and mean, Gale's 155 kilometers wide. So you're, you're talking about quite a large segment of the crater to uh, to target.
0: I bring that up because in the paper, they write, the identification of methane origin, the results can inform future missions of high priority landing sites, and enable them
2: to directly probe the methane source. Are they right? It's a good question. This gives us better information than we, we had. I'm not sure I mean, it, it's, of course, you know, a decision the community would, would reach and, and NASA and reviewers, but it, it, it's a big area to, to hunt for. And if it's such a small seep that it's only putting out a couple of tens of, of kilograms, it, it could be quite small and hard to find exactly where that, that seep is. It, it would be a challenge. It's a, it's a smaller haystack than the, the whole of Mars, but it's still, uh, it, it's still a bit of a haystack.
0: When you say seep, there could be some sort of visible crack or something? That's kind of leaking this out from the subsurface
2: It's possible or it could be covered over by dust and it'd be almost impossible to find except without very high frequency uh, methane measurements in the atmosphere
0: what is some of the ideas for how these spikes are being produced
2: well terrestrial seeps can be bursty so just because of the way that this comes out of the, the ground you know the, I've, I've assumed in my work that um, we're talking about a sort of this background low level that's, that's perfectly constant but of course we're dealing with real materials and real planets and these things trying to get out of fissures and all of that sort of stuff. So there may be times when you get uh, just a big pulse that comes, out of the, that, that comes out of the ground. It doesn't say very much about what could be producing the, 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 the initial methane. And there's lots of, of different potential processes and sources.
0: You mentioned you, your work dealt with background methane. What is the source of that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So the theory that we put forward in 2019 was that you could have a very, very small amount of methane seeping from the, uh, just just seeping out of the regolith. And that it could be doing that over a broad area all of the time. And just because of the way that that seepage interacts with the temperature, there's going to be more that comes out in some seasons. It will be easier for it to diffuse out of the surface in some seasons and harder in other seasons. And it has the effect that at night, when the, um, the crater is, is very still, the atmosphere is very still, and you've got these confining winds, it'll build up. And then during the day, when you don't have the confining winds, when the mixing of the atmosphere you know, picks up, then it all gets mixed away. And you could actually explain the signal that the TLS on Curiosity is seeing and the non-detections by TGO. Um, you could balance those two and find this, um, if this was actually what was happening. So the fact that the TLS makes observations during the night and sees that there's methane at that time that's measurable, but during the day, it's effectively zero, that tends to support that theory, that you've got some amount of small micro seepage happening over a long period of time. doesn't mean you can't have burps of methane for the spikes the way that this is being described, but our work was more concerned with that background signal.
0: Obviously, we know that Gale Crater once had water long ago. If this paper is correct, that there is this methane source very localized on the edge of Gale Crater, coupled with the water, is that of biological interest?
2: You would want to know more because there are, at, at the level that's described in this paper, tens of kilograms, um, there, there are lots of abiotic sources that can, that can satisfy that. Really, what we need is, is more data. At the end of the day, that that's the big thing. I mean, everyone, you've seen figure one in this paper, right? That's not a lot of measurements over 10 years, and they're all individual measurements, right? So we we get one number back. It's difficult to have a, a truly diagnostic model based on, on these things. And I'm I'm sure, you know, as, as much as I would love to have the value of methane every hour of every day. I would imagine that that Yang Cheng want, wants the same thing because then his back trajectory analysis can come up with with a, a, a better location for targeting future investigations. So it's really it's really lack of data, which means that there's um, it, it's hard to, to distinguish between different theories. It's hard to, to test them. Is it?
0: I don't know if this is <laughs> beyond the realms of possibility, but could Curiosity drive towards the source if they if they are correct?
2: It could, certainly, but you know, the Curiosity is, is not a methane detection mission. It has a lot of other objectives, a lot of other important things to do. And so there's 460-odd scientists working on the mission collaboratively to achieve all of those, those different objectives to learn about this part of Mars and, and what it means for the history of Mars. So while I, I suppose the rover is physically capable of doing that, I don't think it would be the highest priority for the rover to do such a thing.
0: Is it interesting to localize a methane source to Gale Crater, like they've done? Is that useful?
2: Well, I think the biggest use here is that what they found for these six spikes is that you can you can identify a region within Gale Crater that that small localized source that could be producing the these these spikes, because one of the arguments against. You know, I, I, against some of the other descriptions, is that you would need to have a big source that was a long ways away, that could be seen by the orbiters. So I, I think it, it it rounds out the TLS story a little bit more to say that yeah, there actually could be these small sources in a particular region that are consistent with one another. I I, I guess one one thing I, I should give a little bit more detail on in talking about the big plumes is that there are other you know, lots of other abiotic mechanisms. Um, and even the big plumes, I, I think I may have suggested earlier that, that those argue more for, um, for biological potential, but you can do things like, um, you know, when, when you have very common rocks on, on planets that break down in the, uh, in the presence of, of warm water, so the process called serpentinization, you can create a lot of methane that way as well. So, you know, there, there's nothing about this that, that screams biological.
0: Am I right that this would, if they were right, this would be kind of the, they say this in a paper, but it'd be the kind of the most accurate localization of a methane source on Mars. Is
2: that correct? It would be. The other ones are, are much broader areas, whereas this one is definitely more accurate. It, it does make assumptions. So the accuracy is, is kind of based on, on those assumptions. You assume that the, the plumes are small. If the plumes are, are big and there's another reason why the orbiters can't see it, then they could be anywhere. But under the assumption that the the plumes have to be as small as possible, or at least below the the ability of the orbiters to detect, then the area that they've outlined that those kinds of plumes could be coming from is quite small.
0: And that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining once again. And thank you enormously to my two guests for their time. I hope you've learned a little bit about Failed Stars and a little bit about Life on Mars that you maybe didn't know before. Do give us a follow if you enjoyed the show. And if you've got any feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Astro underscore Johnny. I'll be back next week. Same time, same place, same spacey goodness. I'll see you next time in the universe. This podcast is produced by Oli Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.